Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Hostrip and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. In today's episode, I'm talking to media composer Nanita Desai. That opening piece of music is called Dark Arts, was written by me and is courtesy of the lovely people at AudioSocket ASX. Thanks, guys. So, what can you expect from today's chit-chat with Nanita? Well, she reveals very early on that she's a huge fan of sci-fi and, in particular, is a Trekkie. Um, I suppose in that instance, I wanted to understand if she was given a choice between Star Trek and Star Wars, which she would choose. Clearly, there can be only one victor. Nanita also reveals that she's a huge fan of Barbara Streisand, and as a child could often be heard belting out some of her classics. So, if you ever do manage to get Nanita into a karaoke booth, pop on a bit of Woman in Love, and she'll be on the stage in a heartbeat. We talk about Nanita's fascinating journey into music, which included working as Peter Gabriel's assistant at Real World Studios. Um, She also cites his score for The Last Temptation of Christ as being, I suppose, a seminal moment in her musical evolution. Um, But she also worked as a Foley artist, apparently spending a lot of time chopping up cabbages. And I was very interested to explore how working as a Foley artist fed into her work as a composer. I myself love blurring the line between sound design and music and was very interested to hear how she reconciles those two worlds. She also has an interesting theory about liberating yourself creatively by restricting your creative palette. I suppose in the modern world we have so many options available to us in terms of where we start creatively that it can sometimes be stifling. There's a paradox of choice. We have so much choice we don't know where to start. And that actually by restricting that creative palette in the first instance is often a liberating experience. We go under the skin with her score for 14 Peaks, Nothing Impossible, which is the Netflix documentary about Nimal Perja and his seemingly impossible quest to summit all 14 of the world's 8,000 metre peaks in just seven months. And we also chat about her score for The Reason I Jump, uh, which is an immersive documentary exploring the experiences of non-speaking autistic people around the world. Of course, it wouldn't be an episode of Sync Music Matters unless we found out about who has influenced Nanita over the years. And she talks about Ennio Morricone, Brian Eno and Jean-Michel Jarre. So grab yourself a cup of tea and a Kit Kat, sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Nanita Desai. Nanita Desai is a multimedia composer who you might be most familiar with for her extensive work in TV and film. She's an RTS winner, a Biffa, Cinema Eye Honours and Ivan Novello nominee. She is officially a BAFTA Breakthrough Brit and was IFMCA Breakthrough Composer of 2020. Nanita's recent projects include Netflix's 14 Peaks, Nothing Is Impossible, which is also an ASCAP Composer Choice nominee for the Best Documentary Score. She scored the critically acclaimed Oscar-nominated film for Sama, the Sundance-winning feature The Reason I Jump, and American Murder, The Family Next Door, which to date is Netflix's most viewed feature documentary. Nanita Desai, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jim. Uh, Gosh, um, is that me? (laughs) Yes. I th- it's always quite telling. I th- always find when I sort of sort of read out the sort of credits, people sort of go, "Whoa, okay." It's uh, it's quite rare to hear them uh, read out loud. Yeah, um, it is for me. But it's, yeah, yeah, wonderful selection of um, 
of credits. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for joining me. The first question that I kind of like to open up with every single guest is if we were to sort of re- rewind to uh, a sort of Nanita who's aged between five and ten, if we were to ask, have asked you back then, what would you like to be when you grow up? What would you have replied? Oh, good question. Well, it, it, it varies a lot between the age of five and ten. When I was five, I definitely wanted to be the first female astronaut in space. That was Excellent. I was very much into uh, astronomy and the stars and the planets and science and 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 all of that. And my father was very much into science and he introduced me to Star Trek. So I was I was a Trekkie when I was little. So um, so that was that. And then and then as I grew a little bit older, I think when I was ten, I wanted to be Barbara Streisand and become a singer. <laughs> a professional singer and so at school at primary school I uh, learned the violin and the piano and then at secondary school I had my own band and I would sing uh, do Barbara Streisand covers and annoy the hell out of the 1200 students at school assemblies and sing wow <laughs> do, you, do you still to this day sing can be, can you still be heard singing barbara streisand covers out loud and uh maybe in the in the privacy of my shower uh okay <laughs> and house but not not in public no um, yeah. no well that that seems a very natural progression doesn't it from intergalactic space explorer to uh barbara streisand uh cover act um <laughs> but obviously barbara streisand triggered something musically in you how did that then sort of develop into was it sort of did it morph into composing or was there sort of other steps yeah well I what what happened was I didn't um I discovered I had stage fright sort of you know as I was the, the older I was getting and I got more and more interested I was I was pretty I was very much a tomboy and I really enjoyed technology and and computers and I used to play with Meccano and 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 cars and and so um I wanted to work more behind the scenes I got interest as a teenager I was very interested in uh, the visual visual arts and got into cinema and photography and uh, making films of my own um, as, as a teen and and also musically um, I was self-taught on various instruments I did learn the piano and the violin at school and I was in various orchestras and and choirs I sang in choirs and I had a great those wonderful sense of togetherness and community being part of part of a whole you know when you're singing in a choir so so that really opened I went to a Church of England school and that really opened up my eyes and ears to so many different styles of music so many different musical genres so um, then I got into um, so I was very much interested in in sonics the sound of albums and what went on behind that so that opened up my eyes to music engineering and you know the role of oh there are record producers there are music engineers what is this world so I got my first multi-track four-track recording device and microphones and drum machines and synthesizers and that was you know got into Jean-Michel Jarre and and uh and all these synth craft work and and, you know these that that sort of that world opened up to me and um and I discovered Daniel Lenoir and Brian Eno and that whole that 
at that time they were really uh, Daniel Lenoir had been producing U2 and the Neville Brothers and you know an incredible uh, Bonnie Lee Raitt and you know, an incredible array of artists so my musical world my listening world opened up through exploring the world of technology and synths and music production and um i thought i want to be a record producer <laughs> i want to be a music engineer and and work behind this these huge mixing desks and uh, you know at the time studios were huge and you know filled with gear and that that was that was really um, magical for me um and then um so i but then i was also very interested in sound and through film so I actually started off as a sound designer on feature films uh and doing the it's it's interesting because all the different it's you're working as part of a big team and the role of audio post-production in film is broken up into all these fragmented little areas you know you've got dialogues and sound effects and foleys and um atmospheres and you know music editing and and all those different areas are split up into different jobs handled by different people um so i had an i worked at as a freelance assistant sound editor uh, as it was called then uh at pinewood studios and shepparton and twickenham film studios where these amazing films were being made and uh i sort of talked my way into uh an assisting job and I got a experience doing a bit of foley as a, I was a foley artist for a while as well. So it was great, really great because you're really just getting into recording sounds and you know mm. chopping up cabbages to substitute for <laughs> people's brains exploding or something. You know? Yeah, classic. Yeah, so so that was a lot of fun as well. Mm. So uh, so I was a foley artist, sound designer, dialogue editing. You know, did all these different uh, roles. Yeah. And so how did that then kind of lead into writing music for film? Well, at the time, well, then I uh, decided that I couldn't get any further uh, up the up the ladder from I, I, I thought I don't I'm. I'm too creative. I, I I wanted to go back to my my creative roots and my my true first love, which is music. So I um, I wrote a letter to Peter Gabriel who's one of my musical heroes and wow. uh, and he runs this amazing recording studio complex just outside Bath called Real World and he runs Womad as well which had started up at the time and I got invited to go down and visit Real World Studios and I basically talked myself into being Peter's assistant music engineer I gave up being a sound designer and thought I had to go back to grassroots again and start from scratch, you know, if I wanted to work in music. And that, that was yeah. a tough, you know, it was a big decision that I made because I could have, you know, it was very well established as a, as a sound editor, sound designer. Mm. So, so I, and did, did Peter take much convincing? Well, this, the studio manager uh, interviewed me. I went down to, to Bath for the day and I spent four hours talking to the end uh, to the manager and he showed me around the whole complex and I, I was I thought oh, I've got all these ideas you know I can create this sound database for you and I can you know uh, I've got all these computing skills and uh, you know 
please let me help you, you know, and, um, and they did. I, I came back to London and I got a phone call a couple of weeks later and he said, you, you know, why don't you, uh, yeah, okay, would you like to be Peter's assistant? Oh, blimey, you know, so it was, a, it was just a dream come true for me, um, you know, and also working with incredible record producers and engineers like that he'd be, you know, Dave Bottrell, who produced, um, uh, mixed and engineered uh, us and... Uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, which uh, was Martin Scorsese's film that Peter wrote the score for. And that was, for me, that was a seminal score at the time. So so I learned so much there about working on um, managing people creatively, how to work with musicians and, and handle sessions and, and all that, that skill set that I learned and developed as a sound designer. And then in music engineering really informs how I work today and, and helps me today. You know, it's just gaining this, nothing is ever lost. You know, you learn from all these different areas, it all informed what I do today. So, so then I met a music supervisor to answer your question, Jim, and um, we became friends. And he was looking for different music, uh, different composers for a Channel Four TV show that he was uh, supervising. And he knew that as a hobby, you know, my day job was sort of working in engineering and sound design. But as a hobby on the side, I was writing my own music and and messing around with my own studio um, that I was building up. And uh, he said, look, would you like to write the music for a TV show that I'm supervising? And um, no one had paid me any money to write uh, music before, even though I was just dabbling on my own. So um, so it was, I was just it was baptism by fire and I got thrown in at the deep end and I thought okay yes I'll do it and then I thought mm, how do I write how do I compose music for TV you know how do I compose to picture and I'd sort of synchronize my umatic tape machine to my computer with a with a synchronizer time code midi time code synchronizer and um, and move frame by frame and sort of write to picture from okay I've got 10 bars before that changes on the screen and then after 10 bars something else needs to happen and mm. uh, and um and so that that was my process of teaching myself how to write how to compose a picture incredible i think there's two things there which i think are fascinating is one the fact that you just reached out to someone that you admired in peter gabriel you know i think a lot of people would really hesitate uh, sort of reaching out to someone that they sort of hold in in high regard and, and high esteem um but but you just sort of did it and as a result of just sort of taking that step and sort of being fearless um actually sort of ended up being his assistant which is incredible um and the other thing as well i think is that you sort of self-taught um i think it's always quite reaffirming when you when you hear about people who sort of haven't had necessarily sort of like a you know done a master's in music or sort of studied composition but that that passion for music and sort of and visuals and actually being able to just sort of marry the two up based on sort of like a natural in, intu, intuition and instinct um i think it's probably reassuring for anybody who is listening that doesn't have because i i find it reassuring myself because i'm sort of again sort of self-taught um and actually i think there's quite a few of people who've interviewed on the podcast as well who haven't had that official training but it just goes to show that you know with with the dedication and and sort of um applying the craft that you can actually get really good at, uh, at you know if you if you can't be good doing something that you're passionate about what you know what, what can you be good at um 
just something you mentioned as well, as you said, your sort of dad was very much into science. Um, was there ever sort of any sort of resistance from your parents with, in terms of maybe sort of going into a career based in sort of sound or music? Was it sort of like, well, no, you need to sort of do science or a proper job? Um, or was it were they sort of supportive of a, a career in the arts? Um, it's a good question. They weren't, well, I, I felt under a lot of pressure being a woman and being uh, not being white um, to fo- to go down a certain road of following a certain stereotypical uh, career path because uh, I actually have a degree in mathematics. Um, so uh, my I've, I felt under sort of peer pressure to go into being an accountant or a or a maths teacher or you know an a, actuary, a, job. a normal nine to five proper job. And uh, and of course, I, I just thought there's absolutely. I wanted to follow my passion, and uh, so I sort of tricked my parents into saying, "Look, this is a five year plan. Let me. I've got a degree. I can always fall back on it." And thankfully, I never fell. I never went on to my backup plan, Plan B. But uh, but they they didn't dissuade me. But they were always. I mean. He, even now, they say, when are you going to get a real job? You know, <laughs> uh, um, it's a classic. Hopefully by now they kind of sort of have the confidence that... Uh, yeah, I think, that, yeah, they've, get, they've given up on me, I think. <laughs> it's, it's difficult, though, because I think, you know, I sort of relate to it because I think growing up, I, you know, a career in music or within the arts was never presented to me as a, as a, a viable career path. Um, so to sort of, to step into that, you're going into the unknown. It's an area, a world that, a lot of people don't understand and therefore sort of have a lot of reservations about so um but at the same time you know wow it you know absolutely worth it and absolutely worth sticking to your guns and following that passion yeah absolutely it's so important i actually wanted to as a teenager when i went to my careers department uh in school uh i had to pick a career um that i was most suited to and i actually discovered the the bbc radiophonic workshop which had actually disbanded at the time I was a bit too I'm uh, a bit too young for that but I wanted to work at the BBC as a studio manager but I I couldn't get in uh, you know I was very interested in working in the media and I thought well you need to have physics and maths and music and it's a really interesting combination of skill sets that you required and that didn't work but that was always my dream to you know I loved Doctor Who as a child um, and I loved television theme tunes so that was that was that was a potential official way into the industry if you like but uh, but it didn't work out like that uh, i didn't have i didn't have physics so um so i couldn't get in um and i suppose this is something which probably just clear up as well is sort of like so if if you were if you were offered star trek or star wars it sounds like you would go star trek Oh, well, mm, I did love Star Wars as a kid as well. So uh, that's a very tough one, Jim. I don't think I can decide between the two. I I think, yeah, both, really. (laughs) Yes, okay, that's fine. Stay stay, stay on the fence. It's always dangerous picking one camp or the other because you sort of risk upsetting people. (laughs) There was um, a friend showed me, there was a a crossword clue in the New York Times recently where the the clue was um, the world's biggest or the world's favourite space uh, TV franchise or whatever. Um, And 
that you could either put Star Trek or Star Wars. Both of them worked. They'd engineered all the sort of like other other clues so that you could write either. Um, but I think I would probably have to. I'd have to wear on the side of Star Wars. I did enjoy particularly Star Trek Next Generation. Captain Picard will always have a very special place I in love, my heart. I love Picard. And I actually, you know, my dad used to watch the original Star Trek Right, so William I think, Shatner. Yeah, maybe I'm edging towards Star Trek, I think. Uh, yeah, because yeah, Star Trek Next Generation was wonderful and Picard was yes. great. Um, I have a soft yeah. for him. And, of course, William Shatner just loved it. Yeah. 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 Um, and what about, just because you mentioned Star Wars as well, do, do you feel like, does? do you remember being struck by the, the score for Star Wars, by John Williams' score? Yeah, very much so. I, I, I think it was probably of John Williams and, you know, my early memories. Uh, it was E.T. and Close Encounters. I think Close Encounters was a big one. And Jaws and Jewel, you know, but uh, of, of Spielberg's movies. But Close Encounters was just uh, Richard Dreyfuss's performance um, and the the whole story and the concept of astronomy and and science that's that really grabbed me and then and then followed by uh, ET of course and and then loving the adventurous side you know Raiders of the Lost Ark and you know all of those I think informed me as a as a kid uh, and and going to the cinema and and watching Bond movies uh, I loved the the Bond scores and John Barry's scores. So I'm very much a child of, you know, those uh, those Bond movies in the in the 80s and uh, Sean Connery and Roger Moore and uh, and the music really informed me. Um, melody, melody is something that I uh, miss. I mean, melody's still around. People are writing melodic scores, but there there's also this duality of of over the last 10, 15 years of non-melodic scores as well because of the way that we use technology that's opened up the world of you know using synths and textures and so on and and also the i think as a result why we don't have so much melody uh, for certain types of films is because directors are afraid of directors want to sit on the fence emotionally um you know and and don't want to be so bold uh, with the music sometimes i think it's, it's funny that this is you mentioned this because this is this came up as well. I was talking um, with Isabel Waller Bridge about this and about the idea that a lot of modern film score is much more reliant on atonal drones um, and is much much less melodic. And I think I like you. I think growing up in the eighties, there was so much fantastic melody, even even within TV. Um, in the, the episode with um, Andrew Stannard, we sort of were talking about you know incredible TV programs like there was Quantum Leap, there was the A Team, there was they had incredible even the, the cartoon Thundercats had the most phenomenal theme tunes, which just sort of like it wasn't music for children. It was incredible pieces of music which were part and parcel of a of a of a TV show and. I think that as well means that you you have a love we have a love for melody um which uh, there isn't quite the same room for you know in the same way that you might be able to sort of easily sing superman or star wars although actually a lot of people struggle to differentiate between the two and indiana jones and things like that nowadays people would be hard pushed to sort of sing the avengers theme tune or the iron man theme tune or spider-man because it's just not there in the same way um but and yeah, and there's I mean, some people posit the idea the temp track is is part of the problem for that because people sort of use a temp track, the director becomes attached to it, and then anything other than that temp track. Um but it's interesting, I love your idea that people don't want to commit emotionally and that's why they go for something which is a bit more sort of 
uh, textural or, or yeah. yes or yes yeah it's, it is interesting uh, I mean I love animations I was watching uh, Encanto recently and um, and yeah I mean I, I, I you know I grew up again I also with having loved Barbara Streisand, I grew up loving musicals and, you know, Stephen Sondheim and uh, early Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals and and using song and melody to reach people uh, emotionally. You know, you can ask the, the man or woman in the street, you know, sing your, you know, favourite theme tune or, or film score. And I think they did that with Marvel, didn't they? It was a, a, and, uh, and people couldn't hum a Marvel tune and uh but but you know you give them john barry or give them john williams and yes they can they can uh you have that oh, ennio morricone uh the first album that was ever lp that was ever given to me as a present was my my mother brought um bought the spaghetti westerns you know fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more and the good the bad and the ugly and that was just mind-blowing for me you know using this very unusual palette of sounds and and the inventiveness of of morricone and his scores and it still stands up today and we have that immediate recall and connection you go yes he invented a whole musical genre you know yeah. um yeah. and um so yeah so Textures, I, I think, because of the way that technology has improved and samples and, and synthesizers and so on, it's just there are many different ways of climbing the mountain. I'm not saying that you can't have a, a an effective score uh, without a melody, but, but there's room for all of that. And I think that's what's so it enriches us and it's so nourishing, you know, with the vast array of palette of sounds we have at, at our fingertips now that it can also though work adversely and complicates things so much. So when I when I first started composing, I, ha I only had a handful of synths. It's all I could afford. I had a couple of synth modules, an Emu Proteus and a Roland uh, synth uh, D70, which was I saved up all my pocket money for it, and uh, and uh, and a Yamaha TG77 synth module and so on. And I had a tiny. We didn't even have hard disc recording. I just had, you know, it was pure MIDI, and I would restrict my palette of sounds and just work with the few, the limited resources that I had. Now I actually find it more cumbersome to compose because I've got millions of sounds at my fingertips. You know, sound libraries come out, they're very relatively cheap. And uh, and I've got a room full of, you know, instruments and synths, as you can see behind me. And um, and so I don't know where to begin, you know. So, so at the beginning of every project, you know, going into process, I guess, uh, is I will restrict myself and give myself some parameters and go, right, I'm only going to write this score using my collection of juice harps, you know. Yes, okay. <laughs> and um and 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 one violin, you know, and and then and then just work within that. Obviously branch out when I need to uh and stray from that to have a little bit more variety, but just creating parameters is so um it's so healthy and good. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like almost that by restricting yourself, you're actually freeing yourself because you don't then sort of have this sort of end up going down the, the, the wormhole of I've got thousands and thousands of different VSTs or instruments to play with. Yeah. So how do I choose when it's just like, just pick one and, 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 and use that and then yeah. build out from there. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with temp tracks, you know, when uh, uh, I actually embrace, I know a lot of composers 
you know, we, we're using temp tracks and reference tracks all the time. And that the problem with that is that when you when your score is temped with 10 different Hollywood scores all written by the top LA composers, uh, you just end up sounding like that. And so that's why it's it's quite incestuous and why so many Hollywood scores all sound like one another because you're given very little freedom to sort of move away from that. And, and then you're also having to work to, you know, within the politics of, of execs and teams and uh, following people's expectations and what they expect to hear within a certain musical genre, within a certain film genre. You know, if you're doing a rom-com, you have to sound like this. If you're doing a, a Hollywood crime thriller, you need to sound like a cross between five or six other composers uh, and their scores that have all set a precedent. So um, so it's a challenge to break away uh, from that and create uh, a new precedent and create something that no one's ever heard before. Um, that that's um, it's getting harder and harder because there's so much music out there. So so it is an interesting landscape to work in at the moment. Under the skin. And how and so how do you approach that in terms of so a project comes in? What's your sort of thought process? What are you thinking in terms of okay? How can I? How can I bring a bit of unique flavor to this? How can I take this, you know, into a sort of slightly interesting area? Like you were saying before, sometimes there's, a, there's an aversion to sort of risk and everything sort of tends to sound quite homogenous. How do you approach that? Well, I mean, if we're looking at 14 Peaks as an example, compared to the reason I jump, which is um, another recent film, which is very different in the way I approach them. Um, with 14 Peaks, it was a little bit more conventional that, I'm very much led by the director's vision because ultimately I'm having to serve the director's vision and, you know, creative sort of conceptual approach. So with that, the editor and, the, uh, and I, I sort of work in that with the Holy Trinity, which is the director, the editor and the composer. And, and we work very closely together. So with 14 Peaks, I, uh, the director and the editor had a strong vision. They had actually laid in uh, various temp reference tracks and and were editing around it. And, uh, and I came in halfway through the edit and I thought, and they were giving me sequences to score to, which was a very big, epic, symphonic score. And 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 the reason for that, it it fit, it worked with the scale and the epic nature of the story anyway. So it seemed right to go down a symphonic approach for that. But in terms of making it a little bit more unique and distinctive, it is set in the Himalayas. So, uh, and, and in these, you know, this inhospitable, hostile region. So, so I did bring in little touches of Nepalese musical elements here and there uh, to blend in with the orchestra, uh, which was which was a lot of fun. And tried to bring it in in a in a subtle way, um, as opposed to banging the audience over the head with it. You know, just to, I always love to throw a twist on conventional music approaches. Um, so that it's not pure. I mean, there's a lot of sound design elements in the in the score as well. So I'm bring, bringing in my my experience as a sound designer and working with the landscape. There isn't a huge amount of music in the film. It's about 50 minutes of music. Uh, 
and it and it doesn't you're not bombarded with it so there's you know there's big music when it need needs there to be but i'm also when i'm scoring i very it's important to me to craft the score so that you're taking the audience on an emotional journey with the music as much as the filmmaker is taking you on an emotional journey as well so that there there are sometimes you just hear sparse drones because you just want to hear the sound of the crunch of the feet on the snow and you know when i was a sound designer you know being able to tell a story through sound uh is as important as working with the ebb and flow of the music as well so everything works hand in hand you know so you make space for music certain some in some scenes music will lead and in other scenes the sound design will need so in that regard i'm not that precious about my music you know it's it's all about everything interweaving together with the images and the story to to take you as an audience on this fantastic adventure and and journey from the start to the finish can you just give us a brief synopsis, uh, Nani? To just because for anyone who's not seen it, we'll just a brief synopsis of what it's about. Yeah, so Fourteen Peaks is uh, it's it's about Nimsperger, of this fearless, fun-loving Nepali climber on this quest, which is called Project Possible, to summit all fourteen of the world's eight thousand meters mountains in just three months. Uh, in fact, he did it in. Um, yeah, I mean, he did it in less than seven months. Sorry, to do it in seven months, yeah. And pre- previously, it had taken the previous person to do that seven years to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. To give some context. So he's done what in seven months what the previous victor had taken seven years to yes, do, which is yes. just phenomenal. So uh, so the idea was to he took his team of skilled Sherpas, because he's Nepalese himself, and they, they climb uh, Mount Everest, K2, and all, all the other iconic peaks um, through these incredibly inhospitable um climate you know issues problems that were had while he was climbing the mountains he was also saving people's lives <laughs> which is just unbelievable and so he's ended up as a bit of a he's a real hero a real life hero um, yeah and didn't he, he he also climbed mount everest the night before him and his sherpas had been out on the town till sort of like 6 a.m so they hadn't slept they were they were hung over and they still scaled yeah everest. i mean he's he's quite uh he lives life to the full and uh, i spent the weekend with him in um in at kendall film festival which is the european premiere of the film and uh he does love to party uh, but he's also an amazing human being he's he brings people together he has this incredible ability to to bring people together and and is very warm and welcoming and he's got a big heart and uh, and one big motivating factor for him uh to doing this is that he has this beautiful relationship he had this beautiful relationship and bond with his mother and that was a big motivating factor for him and uh, sadly his mother passes away um but not before she was there to see him succeed and uh, and so at the end of the film, there's this uh, big emotional moment where he reunites with his mother. And I wrote a piece of music for for them called Mother and Son. And um, and it's it, I mean, and the whole film is thrilling. It's action packed. It's it's about courage and perseverance and pushing the limits of uh, human endurance. And so the music I felt had to 
match that scale. You know, it had a, it had to have danger and love and humanity and drama and tragedy and intimacy and and heroism uh, as well. So it's it's very inspiring and and it was very inspiring for me to to work on the film. I'm glad I was in the warmth of my studio uh, while working <laughs> on it. I mean, I was I was on the project for about I don't know five or six months and I felt cold in my studio watching working on it. Can you what were some of the um, sound designy elements that you um, uh, built in? Because I it was I was going to ask you because I was very interested the fact that you started there and then I think that's a great position because that blurring the blurring the line between music and sound design is something that I love to do. So, were there any specific things you can tell us from uh, Fourteen Peaks that you put in there? Um. Well, I didn't. Well, I worked with the sound designer in so much as you know, work with the director and the editor to work out what was going to take lead. You know, sometimes okay. you'd hear the yeah. crunch, you, you, the wind, and the, you know, when they reached the summit of a mountain. I mean, there are fourteen mountains to peak here, climb, and so I wanted each mountain to have its own musical journey as well as opposed to let's have a big epic piece of music we reach the peak we bring it down okay another peak another peak another peak you know it would be a bit boring so um so sometimes you'd we'd have uh, i think there's some couple of dramatic moments that they cover with animation that's really that's really exciting and so i sort of twisted and contorted a lot of sort of sound design elements took the sound of the snow sometimes and and morph that into the music i took some throat singing uh, from uh, uh, from mongolia and central asia and wound that into the score and took some plucked stringed instruments that i um integrated into some of the cues as well uh, just here and there but the the real sound design work uh, came on my other project actually where i really inter interwove the two together with music and sound on the reason i jump which is uh, which is a really interesting project in terms of where i really got to shine with uh, and bring in my roots as a sound designer mm. And you implied as well earlier that you had, did you have a bit more sort of creative freedom within the reason I jump in terms of trying to find something a little bit unique and yes. a unique flavour? Yeah. So, I mean, with, you know, just going back to 14 Peaks, that was very much the the sound palette and the sonic world and the approach musically was very much led by the director and the editor on that. Uh, and then me working with them very closely, uh, cue by cue and scene by scene. But with the reason I jump, it was very much a, a kind of an open book and it was more daunting. It was a hu- huge project in that regard because I worked on that film for about 15 months and I got brought on board at a very early stage. The one thing I did have to go on was the book, the original book upon which the film is based, which is The Reason I Jump, written by a 13-year-old Japanese non-verbal autistic boy uh, at the time. It's about 12, 13 years ago. And, uh, and it's about neurodiversity and it's about how he sees the world as an autistic person uh, in a very multi-sensory way. Um, so the aim was to invoke the intense sensory worlds of the book using score and sound design, um, not just with visual images, with the cinematography is incredible. And as a composer, I'm very visually led. I'm very visually inspired. You put images in front of me and I'll know what to do for it. 
you know, whether it be a mountain or, you know, a close-up of a daffodil, for example, or, um, and... So you would, you would never, you would never start coming up with ideas based off of of the book or the script. You'd want to see something visual first. No. Well, I mean, normally I get sent images, but with the reason I jump, it was the reverse. Uh, Because I got brought on so early and they were, they were, had only sort of, they'd been filming interviews, but none of the, um creative, uh, hyper-realistic, beautiful imagery that you see in the film. So I did a lot of research to try and dive in and find a way into the film, uh, to find a concept, you know, and I had lots of conversations with the director and the editor. And we, um, there are various things in autism that I wanted to translate uh, aspects of autism that I wanted to translate into music. So, for example, um autistic people and this is this is a big generalization i can't because neurodiversity is so wide ranging and everyone experiences it in a different way but with the characters in the film who are who are autistic one of the characters rocks backwards and forwards a lot and it's a form of catharsis for her so i uh, and there are uh, autistic people also respond to repetition and circular movements a lot. So to translate that into into music, I thought I would take loops, create loops and the idea of repetitiveness within the music to evoke that feeling. Um, neurodiverse people are very susceptible and perceptive to sound uh, in the in the environment around them there's there's so i so that's one of the big reasons why i took a lot of found sound from the film sound and crafted it into musical pieces to blur the lines between the sound in the film and and the music that i would create so for example there's one scene one major scene in the film early on where you've got one of the characters rocking backwards and forwards to the movement of this ceiling fan and table fans. And and uh, and so the sound designer and the director gave me those those sounds. And I actually took little fragments of them and did use a lot of granular synthesis and experimenting with plugins and and uh, and effects <clears throat> and chopped it up and created little loops out of those elements and then out of that would grow a piece of music so in terms of restricting my palette which i talked about 20 minutes ago um i said to myself okay i'm not going to create any music using synthesizers or electronic sounds everything is going to be created using the found sound from the film and my human voice because these characters are non-verbal, they don't speak. And I wanted to give the characters a voice to represent their internal voice. So I did a lot of singing within the film and I took my own voice and uh, and created musical cues out of it. Um, so there's one of the, uh, some of the characters, they only communicate through letterboarding techniques. So they'll have an alphabet board in front of them and they will point to letters on this keyboard and uh, a little bit if you imagine the way Stephen Hawking uh, has communicated you know you'll press a key and it will come up with a sound of that letter 
a i da ko a sa ma a pa. And so on the screen in the film, you'll see when they when they do this a few times, it comes up with letters coming up on the screen. So I actually sing the letters that are coming up in in the musical cues, and out of that grows a piece of music. So we tried and we experimented a lot with those kind, and I and sort of I layered my voice. So at the the opening titles, when the title of the film comes up, the reason I jump, I actually sing the letters. The uh her as na I jump a and it's uh, and and the way another aspect of autism is that um, autistic people see the detail in objects before they see the whole picture. So if you walk into a room, as a neurotypical person, um, I'm not autistic, so I will come into a room and I will see the whole room in front of me before I'll focus in on. Something like a bunch of flowers or a light bulb or something, whereas it's it's the other the opposite with autistic people. They will zone in immediately on little details in objects. You know, the spinning of a wheel or the buzz of a light bulb flickering, um, and uh, and so I wanted to bring that out in the music somehow. And so I created a lot of. Detailed fragments of it's like piecing a jigsaw puzzle together. You see all these fragmented, disconnected elements which I had in in a piece of music, and then somehow those little musical fragments would come together to form a whole. And so some of the cues in the score reflect that and, and mirror that. And authenticity is very important to me. Uh, uh, so w- when composing. And being true to the story, so I found this cellist who's actually uh, autistic herself, and she plays she plays cello for the London Philharmonic Orchestra, but she's also the cultural ambassador for the um, National Autistic Society in the UK. So oh, wow. she came to my studio and played the cello for me, and I got a very personal. Uh, sensitive response to the music from her to to hear how she perceives the world around her. So that was very emotional and and moving uh, for me and and for her as a as a contributor to the film score. Yeah, I think it's funny. I think that authenticity that you talk about is is kind of one of those sort of intangibles which people won't be able to recognize but they'll be able to feel on some level like we were talking before um before we started recording about the score for um for summer um and that you found a sort of syrian violinist um and the fact that sort of that that provides the sort of textual backdrop for you know pe- people wouldn't know that there's, there's a syrian violinist playing that but there's something in the way that that person plays and the sound of that instrument which has an authenticity to it and similarly you know with a, an autistic cellist they they would just have a a unique approach to playing their instrument that you know, as you say, a neurotypical um, person wouldn't. And Stephen Warbeck talks about this as well, actually, in terms of it's not just about selecting the instrument, but as much about selecting who plays the yes, instrument because there's certain like yeah. nuances and idiosyncrasies will will come through on a very subtle level, but they they yes. are there. Yes, it's something that I've learned, you know, from working with Peter Gabriel, um, the way that he brings out the best in the musicians that he chooses, you know, is very when I I like an act uh, like a director will cast their actors for a role. 
I almost kind of cast my musicians for a project. So I'm very particular and I'll do a lot of research and I, I like to bring make the invisible visible you know over the over the years you know when I've worked on uh, projects recurring I love working with specialist musicians and bringing in musicians who are not known to the world of film and television uh, which is quite it's new for them and it's new for me and we get a really fresh result but also you know like with the um, with Forsama I found and, and authenticity you know in the film you have the crumbling city of Aleppo all around you with which has been you know bombing and shelling going on um, and and the whole city's crumbling around you and with the music with the violinist I didn't want a pure western classical instrument which was a very clean pure sound I wanted an authenticity where the sound that the musician made mirrored the crumbling city of Aleppo. It had a raw and a grit and an edge to it that wasn't pure and clean. And um, and that that sort of aesthetic that I bring to the, the musical contributions with my musicians is really, is very subliminal and it affects the audience in a subliminal way and they don't know why they hear it and yet uh you know it just has this this subtle influence on you when you're listening to it it sort of forms part of the whole yeah. yeah and with those musicians do you is it a case of writing a part and giving it to the musician or do you sometimes bring the musician in and sort of have them explore the instrument and have that inform where you go creatively well with the reason i jump again that prof- process was very unconventional because I was brought on so early I actually brought in musicians very early on I wrote sketches uh, using samples and then I would bring in musicians and sometimes I would just sing them lines uh, you know with world world musicians who don't read music I'm often singing lines and singing parts to them and I'm and it's very much this organic sparking off each other process where um with the reason i jump you know with with 14 peaks it was quite conventional in that i recorded the, i did all my mock-ups and uh, in logic and then at the end of the uh process when all the music had been approved i recorded the score at abbey road and i brought in the london contemporary orchestra and we did a you know a whole day's recording and then i edited it mixed the score delivered it and that was that's how normal you know, scores work traditionally. But with the reason I jump, it was very much toing and froing and writing lots and lots of ideas, lots of tracks, bringing in, doing semi-experimental, uh, semi-improvised recording sessions. So I kind of knew what I was going into the session with, where I wrote, wrote lots of sketches and ideas. But then sometimes I had, I would have no idea what we'd end up doing in the session you know so okay here are a few set of parameters and then um so for example with elizabeth wicklander the the cellist the autistic cellist she i did this piece of music i I had a blank slate i had no idea what we were doing and so i made it up on the spot and i said to her okay we're going to record a cello line and i'm going to give you five notes and you can only play those five notes and when i point my finger upwards you will go up a tone when I point my finger downwards. You'll play. You'll go down a tone, and 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 we did that for about a minute and a half, and we recorded one line. 
I thought, okay, let's do another one. And so I played back the first take and we did it again. And we were, I was sort of feeding off. It was almost like gen, um, what's it, generative music. You know, it was, the piece was evolving and uh, sort of layer after layer after layer. And we did about seven or eight takes of cello with only those certain notes being played. And it was like waves of cello playing and this great thick texture which was that was undulating and it was really really interesting and then on top of that I would then carry on developing it and so that was very um slightly experimental you know I brought in a, a, a clarinetist and um she um uh, and a saxophonist and we did sort of circular breathing techniques with the saxophone to to mirror the feeling of repetition and looping in autism so it's like he was doing this um uh throat techniques you know he's sort of breathing in and out you're creating this amazing wave of saxophone playing and um a bit like colin stetson and his uh his score for hereditary which i just loved um uh and uh, so that that was the original inspiration for bringing in a sax player and using instruments where you're using the the human breath uh, as a as a musical sound not just not just vocals and singing but using instruments like woodwind that uh, where you're using the human breath to create um noise as well i suppose it it, it lends itself very well to a horror score because obviously the, the, that heightened sense of fear and emotion and the sort of like the deepening of the breath and actually the sound of heavy breathing in of itself can actually be quite um quite evocative and yeah. um, you mentioned the um the track where you were sort of slowly adding the cello lines is there a particular cue on the um on the score that people can listen to if they want to sort of hear an example of that yes but i can't remember which one it is on the score so you're going to have to <laughs> okay. listen to the whole score <laughs> you have to listen to the whole score okay well I'll, i i will do a bit of research after this and i'll sort of all the music that we've mentioned um throughout this i'll be linking to uh, in the show notes so people can go and have easy access to sort of go and listen to stuff um, it's funny because i i wrote write all these pieces and then when it comes to the actual soundtrack i sort of tend to rename all the pieces and give give yes. them something much more eloquent and, and uh, indicative of Rather what it is q1 v10 <laughs> or q2 b slash seven yes yeah. yes boy walks across field you know <laughs> yeah it's not very uh, not very inspiring <laughs> getting a taste as creatives we're always sort of very influenced by um the music that we've been exposed to growing up and we've obviously we've already established that you're a, a massive barbara streisand fan um are there other kind of particular kind of and this it's this isn't just film scores it can be sort of albums as well and music but particular albums particular pieces of music particular film scores which you can sort of track back through your formative years that you think have hugely informed how you create today um when i grew up um my first major awareness of of film and tv music uh well tv music i love tv theme tunes growing up you know i sort of Doctor Who and and of course Star Trek and uh, John Williams scores and uh, Tales of the Unexpected, Roald Dahl's and uh, children's TV uh, tunes, you know Blue Peter and uh, Grange Hill and uh, you know Sesame Street, Sesame Street, <laughs> yeah, and and so I was I was always a hummer, you know I would just my ears would perk up uh, with TV themes and that was you know a major influence on me 
uh, grandstand sports and uh, uh, I can still sing them now, you know, these earworms in my head. And in terms of film scores, I think it was films, it was for film and the music combined um, because I was a, you know, it was a major film buff. I remember when I was 18, I think I, uh, as a late teen, I would, when I was at university, I was introduced to French the French New Wave, the French New New Wave of Luc Besson and Nikita and the Big Blue and Betty Blue, Gabriel Yared's score for Betty Blue was just blew me away. And again, it was melodies. Um, and as a really young kid, Ennio Morricone, of course, John Williams. Um, and, uh, and I was very much into... So the French New Wave, all those Gabriel Yared, uh, Michel Legrand uh, scores... Um, I remember seeing Pi because I have a degree in mathematics. And so I went to see the film Pi by Darren Aronofsky in the cinema. And the score just was incredible. Uh, it was written by Clint Mansell. And I think it was the first, I think it was the first score that he wrote, actually. Is Pi the film, is it about a mathematician or is it autistic as well? Uh, I can't remember uh, now, but or, yes, it's about it's about mathematics. Um, yeah. So it was a culmination of, a combination of all those things. And uh, even uh, Peter Greenaway's films and the Draftsman's Contract uh, music was written by Michael Nyman. And that, uh, that score was very influenced by Purcell. But that the combination of sounds and music and and the story was really special um and um and and then moving on from that i love thomas newman's scores um i love that emotional ambiguity that he has and i think one particular score of his that i really really has resonated with me is um uh, revolutionary road um, it's an incredible score, you know, more so than American Beauty, I think, for which he's really known. Um, uh, as a teen, you know, I like Trevor Trevor Jones's music, um, writing the music when he wrote his scores for, oh, what was it? The um, Last of the Mohicans and, uh, you know, and The Sea of Love, which is this smaller movie with Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin. And... Um, I remember going to the to my local library when we had libraries and they had a soundtrack department in Putney Library. So I used to borrow all the soundtracks on LP and then make my own uh, and then make my own bootleg tapes of those soundtracks oh, at home. Obviously, if the authorities are listening, uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've long since got rid of them and yeah. paid the, uh, the relevant the relevant yeah. royalties. Um, the conversation, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's um, uh, Walter Murch was a big hero of mine. He's this legendary um, editor, picture editor, but he was also a dubbing mixer. And uh, so uh, David Shire's music for The Conversation, which is just a, on a piano uh, theme, is really powerful. It's all about, because I was sort of geeking out on recording technology and music engineering and sound design. And so that film is really, really, you know, it's all about covert spy uh, spies and tape recording and listening in. And so I was really interested in... Um, you know, I, I really loved films that are about con artists and scam artists and and spies and a bit like 
Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and, you know, the conversation and those Cold War movies, spy movies. I really loved those at the time as well. And so recently I've just, just in the last few weeks, I've been watching Inside Anna on Netflix, which is just, I love it. It's fantastic. I'm just um, really uh, binge watching that at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's a it, it's a t- it's a touchy subject for me because my my wife has uh, gone and watched that on her own. Uh, she didn't wait for me because we, we were going to watch it together. So, well, um, had I not been a composer uh, because of my degree in maths and I was really into uh, code breaking and spies, I, w- I would if I'd gone back in time. If I were born in the nineteen thirties, I think I'd probably been a a code breaker at Bletchley Park. In the it would have been you, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would have been you yeah. to solve the to solve the code because they employed women as well. They had female mathematicians. Um, so I, I really, um, so I, I love the beauty of numbers and uh, and and sort of incorporating that into my musical compositions sometimes. And it's interesting as well because you mentioned that sort of. Um, it sounds like almost a sort of a love for the technical side of things, and because I think sometimes there's um there's a there's a sort of split a dichotomy. You've got the sort of purely sort of creative creative elements and just sort of creating in its purest sense, uh, but then there's the other sort of part of the brain which is all about kind of like the the, the tech and the mechanics. And it sounds like because you were sort of a mathematician and because you were you you sort of your dad was very much into science that sort of that's influenced you in the world of sampling and and possibly opened up. The doors because I think t- today as a modern composer if you're not technically minded it's actually very difficult the days of sitting down with a, a piece of par- parchment and a quill and sort of writing out your score is, is sort of long gone you need to be able to sort of almost produce um all the finished article as a as a, as a demo in order to sort of yes. get, get the gig yes because I mean I don't have a degree in music and uh, I'm not formally trained so my way into musical composition was through technology and and I think if I'd have been born 20, 30 years earlier, earlier I probably wouldn't uh, be a composer. You know, I'd, uh, I would have gone into architecture as something, you know, I, it was like tossing and turning between, you know, shall I study? You know, I love architecture and I love the, I love the creation, uh, the combination, the fusion between creativity and uh you know, music in this case and technology, uh, you know, whether it be the visual medium, you know, being artistic and drawing, because uh, I was, I loved, you know, art at school as well. And I would draw and paint. And so using uh, drawing and then applying it to a very, you know, to precision and detail and, and mathematical accuracy, but allowing emotional um having emotional fluidity as well and and connecting with people emotionally so with whatever form of art there is i i like that symbiosis of the two where things can work in harmony together um, i mean i'm really into midi controllers so i i bought um, <laughs> i was a big investor in the uh, the roly seaboards uh, which right, i yeah, uh, okay. and i love that you know have being able to uh, connect between the musical chaos and creativity in my mind and being able to reach out and get it out very quickly using technology 
in a very intuitive, organic way. And the Rowley Seaboard does that so well. You know, it's it's bridging, bridging the gap between the ideas that we have and not having to endlessly pro spend hours programming it and, and fine finessing it and fine tuning. Though I love that side. I love music editing and, and audio editing anyway. Um, well, it's that it's interesting because that is it's that human side of things it's that you know that that ability to perform you know play an instrument without really thinking about it allows you to sort of imbue it with emotion so i think sometimes that's where technology can actually be quite restrictive because if you're if you're working to you know a click track and it's grid or or you're programming something in in a less than intuitive manner being able to you know allowing that intuitive process it was funny i was having a conversation just yesterday with a group of writers that i work with um and saying uh, and saying like look step outside the box um play some percussion yourself tap the back of a guitar rather than sort of going for a sort of a kick drum in the box tap a guitar and do a take where it's you playing along because those sort of slightly slight inaccuracies is what gives it rise to the sort of human element to it. And because in the box, everything tends to be just a bit too clinical and a little bit too perfect. And actually what we as humans love is the sort of the imperfections. And this is, again, it's something that, that keeps um, keeps coming up in a, in a lot of the interviews is this sort of, um, this idea. Um, but you mentioned, um, obviously, sort of looking at the visuals and you mentioned the sort of like a, some of the, the musical influences. Um I think what was very interesting earlier, what you're talking about as well, is actually your creative process begins even before you're sort of touching instruments. You're sort of thinking when you were talking about uh, the reason I jump, you were looking at okay, what's what what is the world like of a of a, a non neurotypical person? How how do I try and sort of capture that? And that's before you've even sort of started looking at sounds. Um, are there other areas that you can will sort of other than sort of music and visuals that you were perhaps, I mean, you mentioned a love of architecture, but are there are places that you go to sort of draw inspiration that aren't sort of specifically musical or um, televisual, supposed to, to speak. Um, well, f- uh, fun enough, if I'm if I'm trying to write melodies, I tend to do them. I, I tend to sing them first. Uh, if I can, if I can make it work uh, vocally, then it has a fluidity and a feeling that it's much more natural as opposed to trying to hammer away on the keyboard. And so a lot of my melodies, uh, I hear pieces in my head away from the studio. So sometimes the best way for me to be creative is to not be in the studio because I find that being in the studio means that of course, I'm in the studio many hours a day all all the time when I'm composing. But the initial spark of ideas will come away when I'm going for a walk or, you know, if I'm food shopping in the supermarket or in the shower. or And so I'll always have my phone with me and I'll, I'll sing uh, little melodies into my phone and then I'll come back into the studio and the next day. And if it's if I think it's still good then it's then it's worth pursuing uh, and developing further um uh, or not you know yeah definitely that's um that's a little trick i use quite a lot is i will come up with several different melodic ideas and then i'll come back the following day and listen to them with fresh ears and normally there's one which will sort of stand out as the as the winner and weirdly my my, my inspiration tends to strike while i'm having my lunch i was sort of having my lunch and then i have to drop it to sort of get my phone and sort of like sing it an idea there's something happens maybe with food I don't food know. and music yes <laughs> yes absolutely yeah. two, two most yeah. important things in life yeah um incredible well um 
Anita, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sort of um, sharing. Uh, there's there's so much inspirational stuff there. Yeah, I, we I, haven't got onto all the other questions, but never mind. You know, my favorite, hey, my favorite film, my favorite TV show, but you know, there's only so much. Uh, I'll go on then quickly. What, what if you were to be stranded on a desert island and you only had one uh, one film to take with you? What would it be? A film? Oh gosh, um, I do like. Uh, in recent years, I love the favorite by Yorgos Lanthimos and uh, and also Celine Sciamma's film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which just uh, was incredible when I first saw it. Um, so you're only allowed one, which are you going to oh, take? Um, <laughs> the Favourite. Okay. Um, obviously, you, you're on a desert island, but you do have the means to to play uh, video because obviously <laughs> it would be just a bit rubbish if you were sat that with, with a DVD. But, uh, um, and what about an album, a sort of musical album, if you were to have a... A musical accompaniment to the favourite. Um, I guess one my my what a big turning point for me when I was growing up was. I mean, I love Bach. I mean, I love so many different styles of music, uh, from classical to you know contemporary. But I think Peter Gabriel's "The Last Temptation of Christ" was a seminal album, which changed. It ended up as temp music on so many scores uh, for so many composers after that. But in terms of television. I have to say, I uh, binged watch and love Succession. I think it's an incredible. Ah. <laughs> it's and and the score as well by Nicholas Britell. and um, and I've been listening to his latest score for Don't Look Up on Netflix, which is uh, which is wonderful, really, really great. Yeah. Well, again, I'll link to all of those in in the uh, in the show notes. Um, let's just finish up then with a couple of quick fire questions. Um, what's your favourite biscuit? Oh, um, my favourite biscuit, ginger snaps. Ginger snap, excellent choice. Uh, what's a little known fact about Nanita Desai? I'm very much an introvert. And a lot of people think that I'm not because I'm, I seem to be very social, but uh, it's not really a little known fact. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> There's nothing about me is hidden. You know, I'm, I'm just... Well, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed. Um, <laughs> And were you always an introvert or is that... I was you... I was always an introvert. I started off as a very, very shy wallflower. Um, and it took me a long time to develop and grow. It made me, you know, I thought, I'm going to have to eat more than beans on toast. So I need to get out of my shell more. And <laughs> Okay. Uh, what scares you? The dark. The dark? Literally that you're scared Yeah, I do get a little bit scared of the dark. Um if I, if I wake up at 3am and going to the bathroom at 3am in the morning, walking down the corridor, I sometimes see things that shouldn't be there. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I get, I get, I, I just, it's the, I guess, yeah, I do get afraid of the dark a little bit. I, I mean, yeah. 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 Um, and if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, to be, oh, well, it's not just about the music. You know, of course, writing, developing your skill set with technology is crucial, you know, your musical skills. Learn instruments. It's invaluable these days to, you know, to be able to have an instrument to your bow, like, you know, whether it's the violin or the cello or the guitar or anything, any instrument, I think it's it's really useful. Um, and also getting out there, being social, 
mean, it took me a long time. I'm a late developer. It took me a long time to realize that it's not just about writing great music, which is taken for granted, uh, because the technology allows us all to write music of a certain standard now. But developing your own voice, being finding your own voice, being unique and distinctive from other composers out there, uh, that is more important now than ever before because it's such a competitive, saturated marketplace. What makes you stand out from other composers uh, in your music and you as a human being? And also to live life. It's There's more to life than just composing 20 hours a day. You know, you've got to get out and live because it nourishes us. It feeds, everything feeds in on everything else. And so, you know, I love to travel, you know, for example, it's been hard the last two years, but, but I do, but I do travel and, um, and just getting out there and experiencing life and having relationships, friends and nurturing uh, human relationships of all different forms is, is so important to us for it to feed into who we are as, as musicians and composers and human beings. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very, very poignant uh, sort of note to end on. Incredible. Well, thank you so much. Um, obviously, if people want to listen to you or watch the films and listen to the scores, the they're all available on uh, Spotify and obviously 14 Peaks is on Netflix. For Sama is on Channel 4. Um, the Reason I Jump, where, where can people um, watch that? That's coming... This that's eight, still under that's, wraps. No, that's out, I think, on... Uh, that's coming in April to Disney+. Plus. Uh, and that is 2022, so for anyone who's listening in the future, obviously you'll, you'll already know that. But, but it's, uh, if um, you're in the States, it's out on Netflix in the US, and right. uh, it is available on iTunes and, uh, and you know, in other platforms to purchase as well, Amazon and so on. And are you um, are you active on social media? Can people find you? Uh, yeah, I'm on, on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, right. So. And what's your what are your handles on those platforms if people want to find you? Uh, just my name, Nanita Desai. I think. Okay. So it shouldn't be difficult to find me. Um, yeah, brilliant. All right, Nanita. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you, Jim. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really lovely to chat, and thank you for your um, your questions that dig dig in yeah, yeah it's always always fascinating I'm always fascinated by by the people in the process so um yeah and good luck with uh, everything that's to come and um yes yeah, so say hello to stephen warbeck if you if you see him in France. i will thank you very much thank you thank you very much for listening if you've enjoyed this episode and given that you've listened this far i feel you might have then i would be honored and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe rate and review on your podcast platform of choice by subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larpmusic.com. Larpmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larpmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast. And sync music matters podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>